Amen. Have a seat. Wow. It is so good to sing with you all. You know, I was thinking most successful business people or successful companies, they, they're successful because they develop strategies, right? They're good, at, they're good at strategies. They develop strategies for advancement, for growth. They have strategies that they develop for employee retention or for, for, for customer relations. They, they develop strategies for increased productivity. They have all of these strategies in place for growth and advancement and all sorts of things, which makes them extremely powerful. But there's one strategy that they also possess that many of us don't think about, and this is, a, this is one that I think is part of making them successful. It's a strategy for when everything is falling apart. A strategy for when things aren't going well, when the train is coming off the rails, everything is about to to end, or when there's something they're doing, that there comes a point that they need to stop doing. They have strategies for this. These, These are strategies they call exit strategies, right? We all have exit strategies of some kind or another. Listen, I'm not a business person. I don't own a company. However, I am an introvert. Now, as an introvert, what that means is I have, I am a professional at developing exit strategies with people. I, in my relationships, have lots of exit strategies, and maybe you have some of these too. Let me give you some examples and see if you're weird like I am. Um, For instance, I always have to sit on an aisle seat because if I sit in the middle, I'm trapped. I can't be trapped. I need an escape route. So I sit at an aisle seat. Or, or for instance, I'm always thinking of a reason that, that I need to leave early. You always have to have an excuse in mind. You always have to have a place to be. You have to think ahead so you can be prepared to, to, to escape when needed to escape. I always scan the grocery store aisle before I walk down it because what if there's too many carts in the middle of the aisle or perhaps there's even someone that I'm not sure I want to talk to, I can easily back out, change directions and go to a different aisle. Maybe you have these strategies like I know where the door is in every location that I'm at. So when I'm at a social gathering like a wedding reception ugh, or a... Or a, a, a Uh, like a graduation party, if I need to escape early, if I need to sneak out quietly, I can do so in such a way that I won't cause a fuss. The earlier, the better. If you've ever wondered, why is Pastor Charles awkward and weird? Now you know. This is what I have to deal with every day of my life. This is what my poor wife has to deal with every day of her life. So please pray for her because she needs it badly. You know, honestly, we all have these exit strategies, and I know that some of these that I just told you about are, are silly, you know, they're kind of funny, but what about, what about those less than funny, less than silly exit strategies that we all have in our relationships? Now, I, I, I'm talking about when we go into a relationship not just a marriage relationship, a coworker or a friend relationship, and we already are thinking of a way out of this situation. Let me give you some examples of less than funny exit strategies, and quite honestly, some of these hit close to home. They're strategies like this. Well, 
I will come to your church unless you sing songs or preach messages I don't like, and then I'll leave. Or, um, I will work for you or I will come to your church unless you say something that I disagree with or that maybe pokes me wrong and then I'm not coming back again, so don't do that. Or I'm a part of a small group, and in my small group, somebody disagreed with a thought that I had, and so it's clear I can't go back to that small group anymore. I need a totally different group to be a part of. Or my brother, aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever, they forgot to call me on my birthday. Clearly, they don't love me like I thought they did. The relationship's over. I'm not going to speak to them anymore ever again. Or maybe some have gone into a marriage relationship already with an exit strategy in plan. I mean, what happens if this person that you're marrying, they disappoint you or they don't meet up to your expectations? Clearly, this isn't going to work. I mean, yes, we got married, but we didn't really think it was going to last till the end, right? That's crazy. I mean, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, Charles, you are being a little extreme and exaggerating, but I promise you and assure you I am not. For many people, this is the reality of how they live with exit strategies in mind. And, and, and so a reason I tell you this is because I think you and I have a problem. The problem is, is we carry this with us and somehow, I think in some ways, we think that God is going to do the same thing to us. That he has an exit strategy for you and I in our relationship with him. I mean, what if we don't meet God's expectations? What if we don't meet God's approval? What if we disappoint God? What if we don't do enough for God? What if we don't work hard enough for God? What if we don't hit the marks for God that we think we should hit? Is he just going to say, it's done, exit strategy, I'm, I'm through with you, relationship over. I mean, I think I can almost picture him sitting down with me, and of course he's going to be loving because he's God, and he's going to sit down with me and he's going to go, Charles, you know, um, you just aren't quite, you aren't quite there. You've, you've, you've disappointed me a little bit. I, th I expected more out of you, and, and the way that you keep messing up and the way that you keep doing these things, it really is a poor reflection on me, and it's quite embarrassing, and I got to just say, we need to cut ties right here and now. I, I can't go on with you. I need to end it and move on. I wonder if we think that way, and so as we come to the end of our current series that we're in, Gentle and lowly, which has been six weeks, and next week we're starting a brand new series out of Psalm 23, and Pastor Eric's going to be here with us to kick that off. But as we close this series, I don't think we can close it without answering one very important question. The question is simple. How can we be sure God will not give up on us? How can we be sure in our lives, in our relationship with God, that he won't enact his exit strategy with us? Because is that a possibility? Well, let's, let's find out. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles or your phone apps, flip to Romans chapter 5. It's towards the back of the Bible, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're at chapter 5. And in this book... It's written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul here is, 
is in the middle of this great theological explanation of all that, that Jesus has accomplished for us. And in the first five verses of Romans chapter 5, Paul is, is explaining to us why we can be confident and rejoice in all the blessings that we have in Christ. And then we get to verse 6 through 11. And this is where we're going to camp out today. Romans 5, 6 through 11. And there's something in here that Paul says it's extremely important that he wants to convince us of today. And I hope to convince you of it as well. So let's see what he says, starting in verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, he said, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Here's what impresses me about this scripture. Isn't it easy to be nice or to do good things for people when the relationship's going well? I mean, when we're at the beginning of a relationship, perhaps, we call that the honeymoon period, things are all still sweet and fine, it's easy, right? Or when you have a friend or a co-worker that you're just getting started with, you really enjoy, it's easy to do something nice to them or for them. In fact, some of these things can be nonsense, they can be over the top. For example, I remember when Trisha and I first started dating, I would drive hours to see her for 10 minutes and then hours back because it was worth it to spend an entire day in a car to see her for 10 minutes. We did these things because we were crazy. We, we wanted to show the person we love them, right? Or, or then when, when we continued on in our relationship and it was a little later in dating, I was working two jobs, two full-time jobs at the time, which is just insane. And, and I was getting about three hours of sleep a night at the time, maybe if I was lucky. And yet I would stop on the way home to see her instead of going to bed because it was worth it to me to spend a few extra minutes that day with her rather than go get some sleep that I so badly needed. It was worth it because we do those things for people when those relationships are going well. What about you? What are some things you've done when you did something over the top to care about someone in your life? Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was you, you surprised your spouse or your kids or your grandkids with, with a gift that they've been wanting because you wanted them to feel important. Or maybe you stopped at a friend's house who was struggling and you brought them you brought them some things you purchased or even some, some money that they might have needed because they were going through a rough time. Why? Because you love these people, you love those pers- that person, and you wanted to show them how much you cared and how important they were. Now, let me ask you this, though. Would you do those same things for a person in your life that you despise? I mean, would you, would you willingly give up your time, your sleep, your resources, your love and attention? Would you give those things up to someone who had hurt you or who was your enemy? Someone who, who teased or mocked you? 
I, I got met when I was in middle school, this was 30 plus years ago now, I, I was bullied severely for a couple of years. There were horrible years of my life. Years that are etched into my brain forever. Years where I can still remember the names and the faces of those kids. I could still remember what they said to me, what they did to me, and how they made me feel. I could still remember it like it was yesterday. And it hurt and it shaped me even today as who I am. I remember that. And I think, would I show those kids love? No way. Let's be honest. We're not doing it. Of course not. Why? Because they don't deserve our love, right? They don't deserve it. And the point I'm making is this, is that God does not think or act the way we do. In fact, last week we learned that his thoughts and his ways are far beyond our thoughts and our ways, that his thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. He doesn't think and act like we do. In fact, we would never do something like that for our enemy, But that is exactly what God did for us, his enemy. I mean, look at at Romans 6 and 7 with me again, verses 6 and 7. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Now what Paul is doing here is he's, he's really trying to appeal to the common logic that this group of people who were Greco-Romans would have understood because at this time, back then, it, it, was, it was heroic for someone to lay down their life for someone else. Now although it was heroic, it wasn't common. They didn't just do this for anyone. He's saying, look, you would lay down your life for someone in a particular circumstance who you loved or you cared for or you were passionate about. And I think the same is true today, right, for us. I imagine in this room, many, many of you would be willing to give it all, to give your life for something that you you loved, or someone that you cared about. Some who have given it all for their country that they loved. Some who have given it all for a friend or given it all for a family member, perhaps. But would you do that for your enemy? Of course not. Never. And if that's true then and it's true now, 2,000 years later, then what in the world are we supposed to do with this verse in Romans chapter 5, 8 that says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when? While we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. Jesus didn't just die for us because we're good people. Not even close. In, in fact, Paul's clear in his, in his writings here. He refers to us as people who are ungodly, people who are sinners. He refers to us as Christ's enemy. This is how we are looked at. And yet, and yet, Jesus died for us, his enemy. I, I've told you this before. I love, I love reading children's literature. I think Kids' books are the best. 
And I love them because they always have this fairy tale ending, right? They always have the, the bad guy gets what the bad guy deserves. The robber always gets put in jail. Justice is served. The bully is silenced. I love it. The good guy always rides off into the sunset on his trusty steed, surrounded by people cheering, right? This is, this is how a fairy tale ends, and, and I love that. But this story that Paul is telling us, and not just a story, but what we see in the life and in the ministry of Jesus is, is different. This is in no way a, a fairy tale at, at all. Instead, in this story that Paul tells us, the good guy, Jesus, dies for the bad guy, you and me. Jesus, the good guy dies for the bad guy. It doesn't make logical sense for this story unless, unless the story is true. If it's true, then it makes all the sense in the world. If it's true. And I love what Dane Orland says in his book here that we've been reading about verse 8. He writes this, the Greek word for shows here means to commend demonstrably, to hold forth, to bring into clear view, to put beyond questioning in Christ's death, God is confronting our dark thoughts that divine love must have an end point, a limit, a point which finally runs dry. Jesus died for us to show us, you and me, that without a doubt, God's love for us is bigger, is greater, is deeper, is, is more than what you and I could ever fathom it to be. And so if you're checking out right now and falling asleep, check back in with me to hear this statement right here. If you walk away with nothing, walk away with this right here. That when it comes to Jesus' love for you and for me, when it comes to God's love for you and for me, there's no exit strategy. None. He has no exit strategy for us. And yet, I wonder, even though you know that, you have this nagging voice in the back of your mind that, that, that still says things like this. You go, okay, Charles, I get it. I believe God loves me. I believe that Jesus did the things that he did. How, however, over time, he's gotten to know me. He's gotten to know my heart. He knows my thoughts. He knows my, my shortcomings. He knows where I've dropped the ball. He knows my doubts. He knows my sins. He knows how many times I have failed. He knows these things about me. It's hard to believe that he would continue to want to journey with me all the way to the end of my life. It's funny how our brains can know something to be true and our hearts are completely deceptive. They deceive us and convince us to think otherwise. Paul understands these feelings that we have. And that's why I think he writes these last three verses. Look at these in verse 9 through 11. He says this, Since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends 
of God. I, I'm going to ask you to leave this on the screen for a minute because look, I, I want you to look at this, this powerful statement Paul makes. And I, as you do, I wonder what words here jump out to you? Important words, key words. What, uh, words maybe like the word certainly, that we can be certain of this is astounding. Maybe that word jumps out to you. Maybe words like uh, friends of God. I mean, you never thought about it like that. Like, I can be a friend of God. That, that blows my mind. Maybe that jumps out to you. But I wonder if this little word jumps out to you. The word since. Since. It, it ought to. Because Paul is saying here, in fact, underline or circle that in your Bibles if you have them, or on your phones, highlight it. The word since. Because what Paul's saying here is that since Jesus gave his life for you while you were still his enemy, right? How much more is he going to be for you now that you are his friend? If he was willing to give his life for you when you were his enemy, how much more is he willing to do now that you are his friend? I love our author. He puts it like this, and he's much less subtle, and I love the way he says it. He says, look, uh, if God did that back then when you were so screwy and had zero interest in him, then what are you worried about now? What are we worried about? And truly, of all the people who should have worried and, and worried about Jesus giving up on them, it would have been his disciples. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Jesus lived in, and served with his disciples for three years. He witnessed them at their worst. He saw these guys' selfishness. He saw their pride. He saw their sin. He saw their doubts. He saw all of these things. And his disciples, remember, Peter denied even knowing Jesus, his closest disciple. Or, or, or how about um, uh, when the evening the group of his disciples decided to get together and they got in a fight? Remember his disciples fighting? They're fighting about who among them was going to be the greatest. I mean, really. Uh, or how about this? Remember when, when they would get frustrated with Jesus because he wouldn't go where they thought he should go or he wouldn't say or do the things they thought he should say or do and that frustrated them and they, he, they told him so. Or remember the instance when, when the disciples yelled at the little kids in church because they wanted them to stay away from Jesus, leave him alone. I mean, these guys didn't get it. They didn't get it. None of us would be surprised if, if, if after a while, Jesus finally just sat these guys down and said, look, fellas, I mean, you, you're trying hard, but you're not getting it. And you're not, you're not doing enough. This is ridiculous. I shouldn't have to keep going through this with you over and over again. Look, we're just, we, this needs to stop. I'm moving on. Finding some new guys, cutting ties, exit strategy, done. None of us would be surprised. And yet, in the very last scene that we see before Jesus goes to the cross, we read this in John chapter 13. John is just a couple of books to the left of Romans. And it says this, that before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. I mean, this is, this is the end. Jesus knows it. He says this, He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, 
And now he loved them to the very end. The very end. Underline that. Soak in that. Just think about that for a minute. He loved them to the very end. It's like, it's like a groom who fulfilled his vows to his bride. Jesus fulfilled his vows to us. For better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. Vow fulfilled. And, and this is what's incredible, is the same thing is true for you and me. There is no exit plan. We are his plan, period. Done. Despite our sin, Despite our doubts, despite our our selfishness, despite all of these things, Jesus' love for you has never wavered, not once. I love one of my favorite psalms is at the end of Psalm 139, and it just says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They can't be numbered. They outnumber the grains of sand, it says. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You ever doubt his love and care and passion for you? Put that to rest. I, I was um, with. A, I was visiting a just a beautiful elderly woman this week, and and she asked me to come. She doesn't have that many more days left, honestly, and so she asked me to come, and I did. And she asked me to read some of her. She had some favorite verses and some favorite scriptures, so I read them, her favorite verses. And and she asked me to pray for her, which I did. And I tell you, after I said amen, I heard the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my entire life. This little old woman started singing. And her voice was shaky and quiet. I'm pretty sure she was tone deaf. But it was the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. And she sang, oh, she sang out, um, oh, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. She sang this. And I sat there and thought, to the end, to the end. Was this woman perfect? No. Had she blown it in her life many times? Yes. And was here she at the end still proclaiming Jesus' love for her? Without a doubt. There's no exit strategy here. And so as we close our series up, as we as we button it up, let me just remind you why we even did this book in the first place. It's because I'm convinced that we believe that, that God is going to treat us the same way we treat other people. For instance, you and I don't like certain people, so God must not like certain people. Or you and I love people, but our love has a limit. So God's love must also have a limit. Or if we don't want to be in a relationship anymore, we just go through our exit strategy. We're out. So God must do the same thing to us. And if it's true that the the world views God as this conditional figure who's always somehow disappointed with us, it's no wonder people won't come to church. And it's no wonder people at church 
leave unchanged and without a closer relationship with him. And yet, over these six weeks, remember, we have blown this theory of God's character out of the water because these are the six things we've learned over these weeks. Remember, Jesus is always for us, always. Number two, that Jesus meets us in the midst of our sinfulness. Number three, Jesus is our faithful friend and companion. We've learned that the Holy Spirit is our advocate. He is for us. He's our strength. Last week, that God's ways are always the best. His thoughts and His ways are beyond ours, are higher than ours. And today, we learn that God, we answer the question, God will never, ever give up on us. There's no exit strategy. And the best way that we can thank God, the best thing that we can do now as His followers is to in turn reflect His love to a world that I'm telling you what is in desperate need of it. It is up to us to reflect his love to others. So I leave you with these words from our author. He writes this as we close. What's the meaning of everything? What's the aim, the goal for our small, ordinary lives? It's to glorify God. After all, what else is there? He says, we are pieces of art designed to be beautiful and thus draw attention to the artist. It's up to us. Now, Christ followed to reflect that great love that we have experienced to a world in need. What a responsibility. Let me pray for us, and then we have a benediction. But before I do, I remind you, baptism class is down the hall if you want to jump into that. Um, and, uh, and make sure uh, you sign someone's name on our whiteboard if you've been praying for them. Love to join you, and we'll be seeing you next week for our new series in Psalm 23. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this great love. It's overwhelming. Lord, while we were your enemy, for you gave your life for us. Incredible to think how much you truly care and love us, Lord. May our hearts not deceive us. Lord, may what we know in our minds, may we experience in our hearts every single day. Remind us of that. As the days go on this week, Lord, and things come at us and things hit us, Lord, help us to not forget these things. You are with us. You are for us. You are our strength. You'll never leave us. And your love is unwavering. Lord, we praise you for that. Remind us again this week of that. It's in your name, your powerful name, I pray. Amen. Hey, stand with me. Let me read you this, this benediction as you go. This is a benediction from uh, Ephesians chapter 3. It's a prayer that Paul prays, and so I prayed over you today as you go. It says this, When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how long, how high, how wide, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete 
with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ever ask or think. So glory to him and the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great rest of your day. See you next week.